Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Back when we did our episode recently on Peter Rocher, I mentioned that the 8th Earl of Bridgewater was an episode I would absolutely like to do. And here we are. And I was right. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Uh, And this one also, I did not realize at the time, accidentally dovetails in a nice way on the great Stork Derby and Charles Millar's will because it too features a will that could be described as uncommon and capricious in its provisions. However, unlike Millar's will, which led to people putting their lives and their livelihoods in jeopardy. This one is just the silly stuff and no one has to compete. (laughs) Um, And it, it becomes an interesting story about a life of privilege, but also a person who is allowed to just let their eccentricities go unchecked. And it's quite funny. Uh, It does have just the briefest mention of hunting for sports, so heads up there. But it also features some very spoiled animals. So get ready, dog lovers, because some of this might delight you. Yeah, they are some incredibly spoiled dogs. (laughs) Francis Henry Edgerton was born November 11th, 1756 in London. His father was the right Reverend John Edgerton, who was Bishop of Bangor in the year that his son Francis was born. His mother was Lady Anne Sophia Gray, the daughter of the Duke of Kent, Henry Gray. And baby Francis was baptized a little more than a month after he was born on December 14th at St. George's Church. And as a boy, Francis attended Eton College. Eton had been founded in 1440 by King Henry VI as a free education system intended to offer poor boys in London an opportunity to receive a quality education. It began as King's College of Our Lady of Eton beside Windsor. And while the education was free for all, for anyone who wanted to go, boys who were sent to the school who were not from poor families had to pay for boarding. All students were and still are expected to live at the school full-time. It has obviously had some policy changes over the year, but Francis would have been one of the students who absolutely paid to be at Eton. When it came time for secondary education, Francis Edgerton enrolled at Christ Church, Oxford University. That was on March 27, 1773. So he was attending university as the tensions between the colonies in North America and the British monarchy were really escalating. He graduated in 1776, having earned a Bachelor of Arts degree, and then went on to earn a Master of Arts degree in 1780, and that was also at Christ Church. Yeah, his life seems fairly untouched by what was going on in North America. Two other things happened in Edgerton's life in 1780. One, he was elected as a fellow at All Souls College, and he also became a prebendary of Durham. Let's talk for just a second about that prebendary situation and Francis Edgerton often being referred to as a clergyman. He was a clergyman with the Church of England. Technically, he never gave a sermon. He was not particularly hands-on in any of the churches that were listed under his care. Those include, in addition to that position at Durham, being named rector at Middle Shropshire in 1781, after which he had to resign that prebendary, and in 1787, becoming rector at Whitchurch, Shropshire. 
These positions were really kind of largely honorary, and they came with a stipend. But the actual job of doing the work was performed by a proxy. So the title of reverend is applicable, but he was definitely not someone who had dedicated his life to the church. So you may be thinking, if that's the case, how did he land those appointments? And that was good old-fashioned nepotism. His father had appointed him a prebendary of Durham. His father's cousin, Francis Edgerton, third Duke of Bridgewater, had given him two rectories. And that Bridgewater was, incidentally, the one who built Bridgewater Canal. We'll be talking more about that in just a moment. Yeah, so also just to level set, there are at this point two Francis Edgertons in the story. One is the one that we're talking about uh, primarily. His father's cousin, also Francis Edgerton, is the third Duke of Bridgewater We will often refer to him just as the Duke, so you know that he is an older gentleman relative in the family. Edgerton became a fellow of the Royal Society a year after becoming a fellow of All Souls, so that was 1781. In 1791, he was named as a fellow in the Society of Antiquaries. He was in a position of being fortunate enough to be a lifelong academic without having to worry about income at this point, and He particularly enjoyed studying natural theology. That was the effort to establish religious truth through rational argument. Francis was also a Freemason, and thanks to his family, money, and ability to promote the organization and society, he was a highly placed member. In a letter dated February 6, 1786, Major Charles Sheriff, who at the time was working to reestablish Freemasonry in Shropshire, wrote a letter to the Grand Secretary of the organization, which read, quote, My senior warden, the Reverend Mr. Edgerton, son of the Bishop of Durham's, and our rector here left us on the third. And from the conversation that passed between us respecting the fraternity, although he knows but very little of it, Yet, as he will be advised by me and appoint me his deputy grandmaster, I have advised him, as he is known to Lord Effingham, to get appointed for the county, he being a man of family and fortune. It will be the means of promoting the craft in this county, and wherein that is concerned, I always yield, and especially so when the person who tills the chair is ready to receive advice. In this case, it is of little moment who is in it. Further on my own part, I have never filled any chair yet as a mason that I found anyone could talk to me. But his answer was ready for him. So in that slightly awkwardly worded letter that I just made poor Tracy read, what it really (laughs) sums up to you (laughs) is that it seems that Major Sheriff was describing a situation almost exactly like the other appointments in Edgerton's life, where he would hold a position of high rank, but other people were absolutely going to do the actual work. And in fact, according to Alexander Graham's 1892 book, A History of Freemasonry in the Province of Shropshire and of the Salopian Lodge, number 262, Francis Edgerton was, quote, duly appointed provincial grandmaster for Shropshire shortly afterwards and was installed by Sheriff in August. In 1792, Francis moved in with his father's cousin, the other Francis Edgerton, third Duke of Bridgewater. And that is where he stayed for quite a while, in an apartment at Bridgewater House, which was located in Cleveland Court in London. He also traveled with the Duke out to the Duke's Manor in Worsley, The Bridgewater Canal was opened in 1761, and it was built so the Duke could transport coal from his mines in Worsley into Manchester. 
So when the younger Edgerton was there, he saw its workings and his relative's management of it. Because the Duke of Bridgewater was wealthy and influential, this also meant that his young relative was meeting lots of other wealthy and influential people as he lived with him. And this eventually led Francis Henry Edgerton to write about the Duke's work. In 1800, he presented a paper to the Society of Arts about the design of the underground canals that had been developed by the Duke. And that won Francis Edgerton, third Duke of Bridgewater, a gold medal for his invention. The younger Francis Edgerton did not win a medal, but his paper describing the inclined plane that was fundamental to the canal's design was published in multiple journals, and it was also translated into other languages, so he got a good bit of clout out of the whole situation. Edgerton's life carries a sort of duality with regard to his behavior and personality. On the one hand, he really was a fairly serious, dedicated, and accomplished academic, And on the other, he was extremely eccentric in ways that have certainly raised some eyebrows in regards to his mental condition. Yeah, there are times where you'll read write-ups about him where they're talking about his work and they're like, but he also did things that made him seem like he was perhaps not in his right mind. (laughs) Um, We'll talk a little bit more about his his uh, academic work, but I promise we're getting to some fun stuff. Uh, We did mention earlier his interest in natural theology, but he never actually wrote a book about that, although he did write 20 books in his lifetime. He did, however, include a mention of natural theology in an addenda that he published to his most well-known publicly published work. He privately published a lot of it. That well-known work was Hippolytus of Euripides, and that book was first published in 1796 by Clarendon Press. And the notes that he published, which talked about natural theology, among other things, did not come out until 25 years later. John Campbell, first Baron Campbell, offered a critique of some of Edgerton's work writing family biographies, calling one of them the, quote, worst piece of biography that he had ever seen. This particular piece of writing had been about Thomas Edgerton, first Viscount Brackley, who had been Lord Keeper and Lord Chancellor for Queen Elizabeth I. Francis was proud of his family heritage and his ancestry, even though he was apparently very critical of a lot of the members of his family. He wrote numerous books about men of the family and their genealogy, and Campbell's harsh critique either didn't bother him or it bothered him a whole lot because he kept reprinting this Thomas Edgerton biography over and over, expanding on it every time. (laughs) Yes, one write-up about this whole thing I read said he just started to add really extraneous information that was not really important to augmenting that biographical work at all. Uh, We are going to talk about what happened when Francis Henry Edgerton's wealthy and famous cousin died after we take a quick sponsor break. As for the relative who had been so much a part of Edgerton's life, the Duke of Bridgewater had ultimately disappointed his cousin's son. When the Duke died in 1803, Francis had expected that he was going to inherit a significant part of the estate, as he had been living alongside the Duke for more than a decade, and they had been very, very close. And he did receive a significant inheritance. According to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the Duke left him 40,000 pounds. 
That's a lot of money. But he thought that he was going to inherit the estates, and he was really unhappy that he did not. Prior to the Duke's passing, Francis had publicly stated to a lot of people of prominence that he intended to write a biography of his relative. But several years after the Duke died, Edgerton, still apparently smarting from what he felt like was a snub, wrote an announcement that he would not be memorializing the third Duke of Bridgewater in writing. This inheritance playing out the way it did probably stung more than it normally would have due to some unfortunate timing. In 1802, which was the year before the Duke died, France and the United Kingdom had signed the Treaty of Amiens, and that had ended the War of the Second Coalition. And so Francis, who was in his late 40s, had traveled to France for an extended visit. He was still there when the treaty was broken in 1803, and things once again became hostile between the two countries. As a Brit, he found himself under house arrest. He was trapped in a country he claimed not to like all that much to begin with. And that happened just a few weeks after he received word that the Duke had died. Edgerton was trapped in Paris for three more years. Uh, Whether you think that is a hardship. (laughs) (laughs) He was finally only able to return to England in 1806. That had just taken considerable work and finagling on the part of his friend, the scientist Sir Joseph Banks. In January 1808, Francis Edgerton's position among the titled families of England was elevated. Although he was not the son of an earl, he was granted the title and precedence of an earl's son. And this was really just in recognition of his family's impressive lineage, and it was no doubt helped along by all of that writing he had been doing about the family line. And at this point, his brother had been the Earl of Bridgewater, having taken the title after their father's cousin died, for five years. In the time between that honor and the end of the first decade of the 19th century, Edgerton wrote a pamphlet under the pseudonym John Bull that framed the events of his lifetime as prophetic of the second coming of Christ. He wrote that the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars were clear signs of what was to come. This was a millenarian text. Edgerton was writing about the belief that there would be a thousand years at the end of the world that would be a time of peace and righteousness, and all things would change during that time. This was and is a controversial belief, and that's certainly why he wrote this under a pseudonym. And it was not long after he published this pamphlet uh, that Francis Edgerton moved back to Paris, this time for good left some head-scratching going on because his friends all knew all he did was complain about how much he hated Paris. But before leaving England, he had asked for and received a leave of absence from his clerical duties, even though they were really still performed almost entirely by proxy anyway. He probably just could have strolled without making any paperwork about it. Um, His request indicated that his health was bad, But he didn't exactly sit still in Paris, and in fact, he traveled a great deal and was pretty active, so there has been some debate about what exactly was or was not going on with his health. And there have been rumors over the decades that he was feigning illness to be able to leave England for good, as he had fathered one or more children there, and he was trying to run from that situation. That is a rumor that pops up throughout any discussion of him historically, but there is, of course, no evidence one way or the other. All this traveling that Edgerton was doing was in pursuit of his studies. He was buying manuscripts from dealers all over Europe. 
Through those endeavors, he had expanded the network of intellectuals that he had started getting to know when he was still living with the Duke. In 1814, Francis purchased a home in the Rue Saint-Honoré. That was the Hôtel de Noailles. He called this the Hotel Edgerton, and it became a destination for all the friends that he had made throughout the years. This was quite a spectacular place with a large garden in the back. It would have been great for entertaining, but even so, he's rarely described as a particularly social person. Talk some more about that in a bit. And while he was living in Paris, Edgerton and his brother John, the seventh Earl of Bridgewater, started engaging in a good bit of very public bickering. And it was always over money, how each of them was spending it, and how each brother disapproved of or resented the other's decisions. Up until 1823, Francis Edgerton lived the life of a second son, meaning his older brother had inherited the family titles. That brother, John William Edgerton, had been the sort of first son in the family that you might expect. John was three years older than Francis. He had risen through the ranks of the military in his career, and he had served as a member of parliament. John had married Charlotte Catherine Ann Haynes in 1783, but the two of them had never had children. So when John died in October of 1823, Francis Edgerton inherited all of his titles. Those included becoming the ninth Baron of Ellesmere, County Shropshire, the ninth Viscount Brackley, and most famously, the eighth Earl of Bridgewater. That meant that Francis Henry Edgerton, who was already living a pretty fabulous life thanks to his inheritance from the Duke, now had an income of 40,000 pounds per year. And he spent it in ways that were both extravagant and unconventional. We promised some eccentricity, and here we go. Worth remembering as we talk about some of these accounts is that he was living in a hotel. (laughs) Had lots of room. Yeah, it becomes completely germane on this first one. Yeah, he was not living in a hotel room. It was his hotel. (laughs) That was his house, which, ugh. I can't even. Um, We're going to start with an aspect of his foibles that I will confess I honestly love, even though it's completely impractical. He wore a new pair of shoes or boots every single day. He had a boot maker essentially on retainer with a standing order to just keep that footwear coming, but he never disposed of any of these pairs of boots. He kept every single pair, and as he removed them... His valet was to add them to the arranged collection, which was kept in meticulous order. Francis Edgerton used this space-gobbling method of shoe management as a diary of sorts. He insisted that any of his shoes not be cleaned before they were placed in their spot, so that if he wanted to recall what the weather was like on any given day or where he had been, he would examine the shoes that he wore and see what sorts of dirt they had walked through or if they showed any signs of water stains, etc. The bootmaker also had another standing order, and this one is really quite something. Edgerton had an unknown number of pets, but it was a lot, and he had cats and dogs who lived in the hotel, and for each one of his dogs, there was a full pair of boots that was custom-made for each of their paws. Those paws were measured, lasts were made for each of their feet. Can you imagine being the bootmaker who is like, I have the best slash worst deal in the world. Like, the money keeps coming in, but I also have to get dogs to stand still while I do their measurements. 
It's so much more fabulous than that because the dogs did not only wear shoes, they wore full ensembles cut in the latest styles. We mentioned that Francis was not exactly known for socializing, but he definitely had very lavish dinner parties. But these were almost always just for himself and his dogs. The pooches, fully dressed, were seated at the table. Each dog had their own footman to dress them and to tie linen napkins at their necks and basically just stood behind their chairs and waited if they needed anything. The chef who cooked for the Earl and his dogs was the rival to previous podcast subject Marie-Antoine Clarem. His name was André Viard, and he compiled a cooking encyclopedia titled Le Cuisinier Imperial, in which later editions came to be known as Le Cuisinier Royal. He was considered one of the finest chefs in France, and the delectable meals that he prepared were served to the dogs on silver dishes one course at a time. This sounds extreme, but the dogs had to hold up their end of the deal uh, (laughs) to attend these lavish dinners, which is to say that they were expected to behave with, quote, decency and decorum. But hello, these were dogs, so they did not always behave. An often repeated story is that two of his very favorites, which were named Bijou and Biche, that translates to jewel and doe in English, were not behaving properly as he wished for one meal, and Edgerton became very upset and yelled, quote, The blackguards have deceived me. I have treated them like gentlemen, and they have behaved like rascals. Take their measure, they shall wear for eight days the yellow coats and knee breeches of my valets and shall stay in the anteroom and be deprived of the honor of seeing me for a week. That's right. He punished the dogs by making them dress like house staff and living in the staff's rooms for a week when they were not allowed to see him, the master of the house. One Parisian journal wrote up Edgerton and his dogs and their dining arrangements, including... What would happen, quote, if by any chance one of them should, without due consideration, obey the natural instinct of his appetite and transgress any of the rules of good manners? The punishment, according to the journal, reads, quote, the day following the offense, the dog dines and even dines well, but not at my lord's table. He eats in sorrow the bread of shame and picks the bone of mortification while his place at the table remains vacant till he has merited a generous pardon. I wanted to include that just because of the bread of shame. Yeah. (laughs) As an aside on these meals that were served at Hotel Edgerton, apparently even though he had one of the finest chefs of the day working in his kitchen... In the event that he did have a human guest for dinner, and sometimes he did, the Earl would have them eat what he thought was just a fabulous English delicacy, boiled beef and potatoes. And this was apparently not particularly popular with any of said guests. We'll get to even more of the curious behavior of Francis Edgerton in a moment, but first we will hear from a sponsor that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going. During a particularly hot summer, the story goes that Edgerton decided to move his entire household to the country for a spell of several months. And this, of course, became an epic task of organizing and packing and arranging all of the many things in the Earl's life that he felt he simply could not do without. And it took nearly a month to prepare and pack up 
all of those dogs and their caretaking needs and all of his clothes and the dog's clothes and all of the boots for the season, again, for both him and a mystery number of dogs. It's usually, <laughs> usually always discussed as well over a dozen. All of the household goods like silver and linens, etc. And in the end, the stats for the procession included the carriages carrying Edgerton and his dogs, 16 luggage carriages, and 30 household staff. And those staff members rode on horseback. They did not get to ride any carriages. According to this story, they made their first stop for lunch. The details are sparse, but somehow Edgerton found the food and the service at this establishment were not good enough, in his opinion. So rather than risk going any farther and possibly encountering even more disappointment, he turned the whole entourage around and they were back home in Paris before the end of the day. I really hope that house staff was good-natured and well And well-paid, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the dogs were not only catered to by their own staff, we should mention, at home. For their daily exercise, they traveled by carriage, lounging against plush pillows, to the Bois de Boulogne, a large park at the edge of the 16th arrondissement, and they were dressed in all of their finery for these outings. And when they would arrive at the park, each dog had walkies with a dedicated attendant. And if it rained, those attendants carried umbrellas for the four-legged gentlemen of Hotel Edgerton. For his part, the 8th Earl of Bridgewater was always dressed to the nines. One brief biography that Holly read said that this was because he had an underbite and was self-conscious about his appearance. So all of these lavish clothes and the dogs were a way to draw attention from things that he didn't want people to look at. That really seems like it's purely speculative, though. Yeah, there's also the argument to be made of, like, he could have just not been flamboyant if he didn't want people to look at him. Like, he, he's still drawing attention, just trying, sure. to, trying to divert the eye. Um, so, we don't know. That was, if you ever read that, just know we don't know if that's true or not. You will often see it reported that Edgerton never learned to speak French despite living in Paris for years, and that he insisted that people converse with him in Latin. And while this does seem to have a grain of truth, it also appears to be not entirely true. While he may not have entirely embraced the language, he did actually publish in French, although I saw one review that said his his translations that he did in French were terrible. So uh, one of his writings was a pamphlet in which he strongly suggested the French employ a canal system similar to the one that his relative, the Duke, had designed. And he also had other works that he thought were important translated into French, including the works of Milton. In his time as an earl, Edgerton found his thoughts turning to hunting. This was something he had enjoyed when he was in England. But since he apparently had no interest in returning to England, he brought the sport to Paris by having all of the accoutrement of the sport shipped over. This included a huntsman, a pack of hounds, and a fox, and then he staged a fox hunt on the hotel grounds. Later, as he was growing less robust in his health, Edgerton had pigeons and partridges brought to the hotel grounds so he could shoot at them at close range. This understandably bothered the neighbors. They did not appreciate the sound of gunshots ringing around the neighborhood. There are other tales of Francis Edgerton that sometimes seem pretty mythic. There is one that says that he refused to let Napoleon Bonaparte reroute the Rue Saint-Honoré when he was reorganizing the city, claiming it would have ruined his access to the streets. 
The eighth Earl of Bridgewater died on February 11th, 1829 in Paris at his hotel. He was 72 at the time, and he died a bachelor. Although his initial move to France had been shrouded in rumors of a possible child who had been born out of wedlock, and the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography claims he had at least five children, some of them in France and all of them out of wedlock, the Earl never had any children on record. News of his passing, when mentioned, was brief. For example, in the Aberdeen Journal of Northern Scotland, the notice, which was in a much larger list of deaths, simply read, quote, at his hotel in Rue Saint-Honoré, Paris, on the 13th, was in Holy Orders and the senior prebendary of Durham. His father, Dr. Edgerton, was Bishop of Durham. He succeeded his brother, John William, in 1823, but dying unmarried, the title is extinct. He was buried at Little Gadsden, Hertfordshire, on March 4th in Bridgewater Chapel. Bridgewater's will was unusual, and it reflected his eccentricities. He had made it out almost exactly four years before his death on February 25th, 1825. It passed through probate court as a proven document in April of 1829. We mentioned in our episode on Peter Roger that Bridgewater set aside money for the writing and publication of a series of books on, quote, power, wisdom, and goodness of God as manifested in the creation. That money was a sum of 8,000 pounds, which was left to the Royal Society with the understanding that the society president would appoint the appropriate authors to carry out this task. Eight men were selected to each write a treatise. Thomas Chalmers, John Kidd, William Wellell, Sir Charles Bell, Peter Mark Roger, William Buckland, William Kirby, and William Prout. And while Edgerton undoubtedly hoped that this would be a significant legacy, and as you recall from that Roger episode, he thought his would be for sure, uh, the writing of it was all pretty safe and even outdated in its idea. We also mentioned this in the Roger episode. And also, this was just an expensive thing. He had left enough money to print 1,000 copies, but there were volumes and volumes. They didn't sell very many. Um, so while it was a significant achievement in some ways, certainly, in terms of its impact, not so much. In addition to the provisions for the Bridgewater treatises, Francis Edgerton left money to various churches and learning institutions, he donated his significant collection of 67 manuscripts focused on French and Italian literature and history to the British Museum, along with about 12,000 pounds for the purchase of additional items. Fifteen years after Francis Edgerton's death, his cousin Charles Long, Baron Farnborough, left another 3,000 pounds to the Bridgewater Fund. The British Library maintains the Edgerton collection to this day and continues to add to it. It has acquired nearly 4,000 new pieces with money from that fund. The Earl's will also allocated money to ensure that his home in Paris could continue to operate just as if he were still alive for a full two months. He also instructed that each member of the staff there, and that was a considerable number of people, was to receive a new morning suit, a cocked hat, and three pair of the best quality worsted wool stockings. In the little Gadsden church where Francis Edgerton is buried, there is a monument to him. You can see this online at the little Gadsden church website. There are also monuments to other members of his family there, but Francis specified the design of his in his will. It features a woman with her feet appearing to be in the sand of a seashore, and a dolphin is at her feet. She's seated 
with her left elbow resting atop the ear of an elephant. A crane stands behind her with its body turned away from her, but its face pointing in the same direction as hers, as though they are looking at the same thing. No one knows why he wanted any of these things on his monument. It's very specific. No knowledge of elephants being significant to him. No, no, uh, just perhaps he just thought it would be hilarious to make someone carve a thing with a bunch of different animals on it. Uh, Or maybe he just liked those animals. We don't know. You might find it curious that we did not mention any dogs on that monument, considering how he lavished love and gave a very extraordinary life to the animals that he adopted. And in fact, interestingly enough, the dogs are excluded entirely from his will, with no mention whatsoever of them or arrangements for their care. So we don't know what happened to the pups. My hope although this is a very uh, made-up-in-my-head hope, is that they stayed with the people who had been their minders, that those were good relationships, but I don't... I'm, that's just my fairy tale version of how this is. Yeah. <laughs> do you have some listener mail? I do. I have a, a listener mail from our listener, Stephanie, who writes us about our eponymous food recent episode where we talked about fettuccine Alfredo writing, I adored your recent eponymous food episode. As a culinary school grad and former food writer, I love all your eponymous food episodes, but the origins of fettuccine Alfredo hit me much harder than the others. After the birth of both of my sons, I experienced a side effect of postpartum anxiety, separate from postpartum depression, but less talked about, in which I completely lost my sense of taste and also my appetite. Anxiety can do this to some people in the sense that it messes with your neurology and causes you to experience anhedonia, loss of pleasure in things, and it's awful. I know some people have anxiety reactions that make them eat more in order to get some pleasure, but that is not the case with me. With my second son, my anxiety was so profound that it did become depression, and even scarier was that I ended up losing a dangerous amount of weight just because of my extreme disinterest in food and everything else. Luckily, I did get help, and when I stopped breastfeeding and weaned my son, everything improved. I don't have a problem talking about this, mostly because I don't think we have enough conversations about the realities of postpartum health and how it's not just depression. Now I recognize that Alfredo's wife might not actually have been suffering from postpartum anxiety or depression, but the lack of appetite following the birth of their child in a time where we really didn't talk about postpartum health really resonated with me. Therefore, I completely love the idea that maybe this amazing dish was created as a caring husband's cure for postpartum issues. Thank you again for all you do. Not only do I look forward to your episodes, but so do my history-obsessed 12-year-old and his younger brother. Uh, Cheers and best wishes, Stephanie. Stephanie, thank you for this, because I agree. It's one of those things we... I know so little about it. I have not had a child. I certainly have lots of friends and relatives who have. But I do feel like postpartum issues are one of those things that are, like, not discussed. And for some people, it's just because it's private and they don't want to relive it by discussing it. But I also think it's important that people just know that sometimes you can have anxiety. It can manifest in lots of different ways. I, in my dreams, fettuccine Alfredo cures every possible known problem. <laughs> um, that would be my excuse for all those gallons I said I eat. Uh, but I'm so glad that things turn around and that your kids sound like they are happy and healthy and that you all listen. Um, it's wonderful. Thank you for sharing this with us. If you would like to write to us and share your stories, um, maybe you too 
hire a very expensive chef to feed your dogs. Uh, that would be great if you have that story, please. Write it. <laughs> you can do that at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media at Missed in History, and you can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.